Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, dreaming of my lost Lenore, gone from me forevermore, came a timid tap, tap, tapping, then a gentle rap, rap, rapping, softly on my chamber door. T'was the wind and nothing more. Edgar Allan Poe lived a life of disappointment. Nothing was right from the beginning. His talent was great and his fame was acclaimed during his time, but a bad temper and an unfortunately close affinity with liquor never allowed him to retain any financial security throughout his stormy 40 years. He was temperamental, self-centered, sure of himself, contemptuous of the world, and he must have felt life deeply and passionately. My poor heart, my beak is breaking, take it out, I beg him shaking, eyes more evil than before, quoth the raven nevermore. On my chamber door still sitting, is a demon never flitting, I cry go This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. It is a dreary, cold day here in the mountains of West Virginia. The grass is brown, the forest is gray, the snow is all melted, and the sky is kind of silvery and closing in and ominous as if it's about to snow. And this is just the right environment to get into our part two of our Poe podcast. Uh, It is with the same guest. It is the second half of our conversation um, with Chris Semsner. He is an author, an artist, a painter, a lecturer, and the curator of the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. Part one was about Poe's early life in Richmond, in Charlottesville, and ending, we ended our conversation about his failed uh, attempt at going to the military academy in West Point in the Hudson River Valley. From there, we're getting into part two, which uh, we're picking up on this idea of the imp of the perverse, uh, this little shadow feeling that we all might have. And um, then we're going to get much more into his work, um, into themes in that he expressed through different short stories. We're going to hear about uh, the the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, his only novel. And in this one, Poe 
uh, tells kind of this like horror, surreal story of uh, an, an excursion on a whaling ship that's going to the kind of like the end of the world. And then we talk about Poe's death, Poe uh, dying in Baltimore, the whole scenario around his life, very strange. And finally, we talk about kind of paranormal, paranormally stuff regarding Poe, regarding uh, people saying they've seen his his uh, ghost and stuff like that. So a really fun conversation. And if you listen to the first one, uh, you already know that Chris has just got to be one of the most amazing people on earth to speak about Poe. It's just, I feel like Chris could talk about Poe for, we could have done a hundred episodes of this podcast on different themes. For more information about the museum or about Chris, uh, either go to poemuseum.org or chrissemptoner.com. I'll have links in the show notes. And on Chris's website, you can find um, links to buy the books that he is going to talk about, his books that he is going to talk about in this episode. Now, I'd like to quickly say thank you to everyone who's been helping me out on Patreon. Um, I have mailed you a little free print um, as a token of my appreciation. If you haven't given me your address, go ahead and send me a message and I will send you a print. Um, I want to say a big thank you to Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw at Topsy Farms, Alexander Kurashev, On Stanley, Kaylee Lindman, Craig Kovring, Diana Gonzalez, Earl C. Suter, Eugene Elliott, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jacob Griffin, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff McLaughlin, uh, Les Paget, uh, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Michael Zorn, Michelle Alderson, Michelle Miller, Nathan Griffin, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Queckner, Sophie McVicker, T. Pierce, The Militant Hippie, Tristan Harper, Waddle and Dobb, Craftsman, The Working Class, The Working Class Woodsman, and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you very much. Now, usually this is the time where I do a reading on the podcast and, uh, I don't find myself particularly that great at reading. So I have a, a good excuse today. Today, I think this would be even more neat than me reading some passage. I am going to play an archival recording from the 1950s of the entire short story of the black cat. Now, um, this is a 25 minute story. Just like last time I read a story that was about half an hour. So if you want to skip through it, skip through it. But our conversation with Chris immediately goes into the black cat. So this is my favorite or one of my favorite of Poe's for sure. And when I first read Poe as an adult, you know, I probably, you know, like every school kid, you probably, you know, read The Raven or something in school, but I don't remember any of that. So the first time I properly read Poe, I was an adult and I was working in this uh, restaurant in Brooklyn and the upstairs was like a real hip, like speakeasy, um, early 1900s, 1920s vibes where they'd have like live music. It was always like folk music or something of that time period, like really cool spot, kind of cocktail bar vibes. But I worked down in the basement and the basement was just this like tiny one room restaurant. And, um, the walls were covered in bottles, like, uh, they kind of were giving the aesthetic of a wine cellar. And I would be working, always work alone because there was rarely anyone that would, while the bar was always happening, the restaurant didn't always have that much traffic. So there were plenty of nights where I would work and there would be not, not a single patron like midweek or something. And 
this this room was tiny and it was dark. It was only candlelit. Well, no, there were some of those kind of like old timey bulbs that you can see the uh, the inner workings of the bulb, kind of like you know, kind of steampunky vibe thing going on with that or vintage uh, vibe with the bulbs, but very low lit. This room was very, very low lit. And I, at, at the little bar I worked from, I had all these, the candles all lit and just big piles of wax. And, you know, some, like I said, sometimes no one would come in. So I would just be reading by myself for hours and hours and hours. And there were a handful of weird things that happened down there. I mean, for one, the rare occasion you would hear the little shriek and the scuttling past of a rat. And that's always unnerving and foul. But sometimes I'd just be sitting there reading behind the counter and glasses would just fall off of the the bar from behind me. And there had been no movement. We weren't near a subway. Um, you know, we weren't too near like a main road where maybe that could have sh- uh, shaken the foundations. It was as if in dead silence, glasses just threw themselves off of the bar and smashed at my feet. And I would always kind of turn around and be a little weirded out by that. But one time I'm down there by myself and the cook comes down to give me my staff dinner. And like I said, it's very low lit down there. There's no one down there. And um, he comes to give me my meal and we're just talking behind the bar. And there is a, um, there is a, door that leads to a handful of steps that go up to street level. And that's like for staff to take the trash up in New York. You, you put your trash bags out on the street for pickup. So that's what that doorway leads to. And we're just sitting there talking behind the bar. And all of a sudden that door just swings open on its own, this big, heavy wooden door and the little uh, metal latch that um, imagine like those simple metal pin that you stick through a little loop on kind of like a very simple door, like maybe something you have for outside or in your barn. That's the kind of latch system it had on this door. This door threw itself open and that little metal latch was spinning in circles, insanely just spinning. And me and the cook just look at each other and we're like, what in the hell? Very strange. So anyways, this is the scene of where I first started reading Poe. And I had this little book of short stories. And the very first short story was The Black Cat. And immediately, I was just floored at how within just a few sentences, Poe has masterfully made you feel this incredible sense of dread, just unnerving tension, and you know you're headed to, to doom and gloom. The Black Cat. For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world, plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, 
have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace. Some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these, I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point. And I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog when by accident or through affection they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, 
Even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him. When in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body. And a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation. And then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man. Who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or a stupid action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cold blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart. Hung it because I knew that it had loved me and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense. Hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin. A deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul. On the night of the day on which this most cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. 
my entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here, in great measure, resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed but was not remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat half-stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. 
I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated. But I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed me. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill-use it, came to look upon it with unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down. Or, fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamor in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell I am almost ashamed to own, that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite. But by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name. And for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. O oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast who, in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. 
Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest anymore. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone. And in the latter, I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torment such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. Uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, here at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. 
My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness. For I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. But it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept! even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say, if but one word by way of triumph, and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all help and a little more courtesy. Uh, by the by, gentlemen, this, uh, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say, an excellently well-constructed house. These walls are... Are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend... No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb by a cry at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child and then quickly swelling into one long, loud and continuous scream utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party on the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and awe. In the next, 
A dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. Imp of the Perverse, he called it. Hmm. And there's a story called Imp of the Perverse, but he also writes about it in The Black Cat, about this... That's my favorite one. Uh, this idea that, you know, sure, there's this voice in you that tells you the right thing to do. You know what you should do, but then there's like this dark passenger that's telling you to do the wrong thing for the wrong thing's sake, even if it's going to lead your downfall. Hmm. This voice, when you're staying on the edge of a cliff... It's pushing you ever so closer, closer to the edge, even though you know that falling off that cliff will lead to your destruction. There's something that leads you on to do the thing that you know is horrible, you know is wrong. And the black cat, he loves his cat. But that force within him that somehow gets more powerful and he's had something to drink, it makes him pluck out the cat's eyeball with a pin knife just because he knows it's a horrible thing to do. And even now you think about it, that's a pretty awful thing to do. <sighs> Imagine yourself doing that to the cat that you love, that sitting on your lap, you think the world is cat, and you just pluck out its eyeball just because you know that's just an unforgivable crime and you know you'll hate for yourself for it. So Poe understood that that little guy on top of the elephant, he's not driving the elephant. It's the elephant. He's going where he wants to go, in and he the, sort of makes some suggestions there. In the Jungian term, I would call that yeah. the shadow. Yeah. So he's letting the shadow do the driving. Yeah. And, and once he pulls the eye out of the cat, that's, that's just the first step in a chain yeah. of events of darker and darker. Yeah, and the black cat, we've got a guy who's kind and gentle. He loves all of his animals. His cat, his monkey, adores his wife. But what causes him to let that shadow get stronger and eventually take over to the point that he buries an axe in his wife's brain. And well, alcohol, blood. alcohol will not help that situation. Yeah, alcohol <laughs> doesn't help him there. But that story really shows us the descent of this guy to losing control, that dark force within him. And Poe maybe understood something about this. This is a guy who you know, went to West Point got himself kicked out for gross neglect of duty and disobedience of orders. He would get a job here. He'd either get fired or quit after a year. He bounced around from job to job. The people who should have been his friends, he made enemies out of them. Hmm. He kept getting himself deeper into trouble. And he realized that there's not just one force here. There's two competing forces. He also wrote a story called William Wilson. And that's about a fellow who's so evil and so wicked that he won't tell you what his name is. He won't sully the page with his name. So he just tells you, my name's William Wilson. For the purpose of my story, it's William Wilson. And he tells you about all the horrible things he's done in life. But wherever he's go, ever since he was in boarding school, there was somebody who looks just like him. 
also named William Wilson, also has the same birthday, and he follows around, only speaks in a whisper, and whenever William Wilson's about to cheat somebody at cards or something, the other William Wilson will whisper in the other person's ear and say, hey, he's about to cheat you, it gets you in trouble. So eventually, the evil William Wilson thinks that the good William Wilson's evil, just because from his perspective, that one is trying to that one's trying to lead to his downfall and shadow projection. Yeah, it doesn't go well at the end of that one. I either. haven't read that one. Well, you have to read that one now. Yes, yes. So Poe had this idea that yeah, there are competing forces within us, and mm. this is the 1830s. We're still trying to figure out what makes people tick because you know the best pseudo scientists in America are saying, you know what, we can determine people's personalities based on the shapes of their skull. Mm-hmm. Maybe if we map out all the bumps in their skull, that tells us about their personality. Oh, they have a big bump of agreeableness. Oh, they've got a pugnacious bump back there. And Poe's saying, well, maybe there's something else to it. And Poe, at first, he read everything about phrenology and sort of knew about the basics of it. And even in the fall of the House of Usher, we can tell his description of Roderick Usher is based on descriptions of the nervous temperament from phrenological textbooks of the day. Mm. So he's reading the textbooks. And if nervous, you know, that means you got too much blood. Or if you're melancholy, that means you got too much black bile. But so he's he's saying, well, maybe that's not the way it works. Maybe it's something else. Maybe we do have this imp of the perverse. And the imp of the perverse is another short story, which starts out as a long essay all about this force that makes us do the wrong thing for the wrong thing's sake, mm. just like in The Black Cat. Mm. So Poe was fascinated with what makes us tick? Why do we do this? He must have questioned, why do I keep getting myself fired? Everything was going right for me, and I had to mess it up for some reason. What's going on He's here? almost like a, a through art, like a psychoanalyst. Yeah. Because how so many of the stories are written in first person. So he's not telling you about some terrible person. It's the terrible person is telling it. You know, like the black cat is in first person. So it's saying, oh, I've had these awful, you know, it's always like, it's almost like someone in therapy or someone being like, oh, I've had, I'm just like so clenched up with terror and dread. And it's like, I th- really, it's like incredible psychoanalysis of himself, I feel. Yeah, and and Poe's looking to find out, well, what makes somebody commit these horrible crimes? But also, what is the barrier between sanity and insanity? Hmm. Where is that barrier line? Maybe those elements are both within us at the same time. Maybe there's competing forces at the same time. And in the Telltale Heart, Poe would have heard about a recent trial where a little old man had been sleeping in his bed at night and a man crawled into the window and killed him, just brutally killed him and crept out of the night. And And Daniel Webster was a prosecuting attorney on that case. And he said that, you know, the killer's guilt can never let him be free. And he thinks he is true to himself, but he's false to himself because it will track him down. It's in the very beat of his heart. And and then another case that Poe would have actually been a reporter on. He was reporting for a magazine, a paper called Alexander's Weekly Messenger, and Poe reported on the case of James Wood. Not the actor, that's James Woods. But James Wood had killed his family. And he was claiming that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. So during the trial, people were trying to discover, well, 
How do we know if he's sane or insane? How do we know he was insane at the time he did this? And Poe writes in his article, he says, well, I noticed the fact that he's very calm in the way he describes purchasing the pistol and killing his family. That seems like proof to me of his insanity, this, this remarkable calmness. Mm. And, and that's what we have in the telltale heart. It, the narrator assures you he's not mad. He says, see how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. And so Poe is bringing real crime into his stories and no trying idea. to figure out why do these people do what they do? How about I tell the story from their point of view? And this is another great thing. Way at the beginning of this interview or this conversation, I was talking about how Poe decided that poetry was the real purpose mm-hmm. and beauty was all poetry had to do. It just had to be beautiful for its own sake. The poem could exist for the poem's sake. It no longer had to edify you, no matter had to teach you anything. And now he's doing the same thing with fiction. Before that, you know, in fiction, virtue should be rewarded. Hmm. Villainy should be punished. The hero should win the day. The villain should lose. But what about the telltale heart or the, the black cat where... We are the narrator. We're inside the mind of the killer. Or best example, I think, has got to be the cask of Amontillado. You've got right there a story told from the murderer's point of view. He gets away with the crime. He's telling you the story 50 years later, probably on his deathbed, and he's joking about it. Or how about Hop Frog, one of Poe's last stories? Don't know and, that one. Oh, that is a story about this man who's been enslaved, taken from a faraway land, and forced to work as a court gesture for this cruel king. And we sympathize with the enslaved character. He becomes our hero as he's being abused by the king, and he pulls the greatest practical joke ever on the king. The king and his seven ministers say, we want to have this great practical joke. Well, and, and Hop Frog says, how about you throw a masquerade ball and you and your seven ministers, you'll dress up like orangutans with chains around you, like you just escaped from a menagerie and scare everybody. We'll have a grand old time. So the king and his ministers, ministers they dressed up in tar and flax and... They run into the party, scare everybody. They think they're orangutans, and they have this chain around them. And then Hop Frog comes and says, don't worry, everyone. I'll rescue you from these, these orangutans. And he takes a chain and hooks it up to a chain descending from a chandelier, and he pulls it up to the ceiling. And he climbs up the chain because he's kind of an acrobat. And he holds up a torch and says, oh, I'm sorry. That, those aren't orangutans. I thought they were orangutans. That's just the king and his ministers. And oops. My torch got a little bit too close, and now they're on fire. And and it's a story told from the it's told in a third person point of view, but still we follow and we sympathize with the, the villain, killer. the killer, because he's killing somebody who deserves it in this story. And even though it starts out with a sort of comic mood, it starts out like a comedy. If you read the first few pages or first few paragraphs, you'd be forgiven for thinking, oh, Poe's writing something funny. But then he sets the guy on fire and he escapes. He's never punished. He and his girlfriend both escape into the night. So I know Poe kind of invented a handful of genres. Was writing from the point of view of the villain, was this a totally new idea for the most part? 
Uh, for the most part, this was sort of Poe's big claim to fame is really getting in the side of the, the heads of these people. And he wasn't just interested in the villains and say the Dupin mysteries, which are the murders in the Rue Morgue and the Purloin letter and the mystery of Marie He was interested in finding out about the workings of a truly analytical mind, this Auguste Dupin, who's the first fictional detective. And he explains how his mind's not like our minds, that you can be walking through the streets of Paris in total silence with him for 15 minutes, and then he'll answer the question you were just thinking to yourself. He'll answer it out loud, and then he'll tell you the whole chain of thoughts that have been running through your mind for the past 15 minutes when we weren't talking. And then once he sort of gets you into the head of this detective character, they solve a seemingly impossible mystery. And then they solve another one. They solve another one. And this is, so Poe is accredited with kind of inventing the detective stories, yeah, right? That's why the Mystery Writers of America gives out an Edgar Award each year. Really? It's a little Poe statuette. Really? And then I know he's also accredited for, I don't know if he's considered the inventor of it, but he certainly wrote science fiction. Yeah, he wrote science fiction, and we'd had science fiction for a while. Okay, and, okay. And we can think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein back in mm. 1818 mm-hmm. as a good example of sort of earlier science fiction. And just for those who might not have read any of his works, you know, today we think of science fiction as space, but science fiction is just, he was reading the science, and it's about hot air balloons. Yeah. It's about, about technology of his time period. Oh, yeah. And if you think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, it's very moralizing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of moral to it. What Poe did is he cut out the moral. He doesn't care about teaching you something or edifying you. And he focused on the science and he focused on the real science of the day and said, how far can we push that? In the case of the balloon hoax, he wrote about you know crossing the ocean, a hot air balloon in three days. He used a real life balloonist, Monk Mason, made him a character in the story so it seemed more believable. In Hans Fall, he writes about a trip to the moon, and he tries to figure out, well, how fast will he? we have to accelerate in order to break free of the Earth's atmosphere? And once we leave the Earth's atmosphere, how are we going to survive? We have to invent a contraption where we're sort of in a bubble so we won't die as soon as we leave the Earth's atmosphere. And, and this is like in the 18... 18- yeah, this is 1835 here, <laughs> and way ahead of his time. Jules Verne was seven years old when this story came out. And Jules Verne called Poe the leader of the cult of the bazaar. And what he liked about Poe's science fiction was the scientific verisimilitude, this idea that he made it sound like it could really happen. He tried to use as many scientific sounding details as he could to make it sound like it's plausible. With Frankenstein, you don't really quite mm. know how they brought him back. It's not scientifically mm-hmm. plausible. It's almost magic, but... Poe wants to focus on the science so we can really think this is something that could happen. Interesting. And he also writes about the distant future. In Malone Tata, he wrote about the year 2848, so a thousand years in the future from when he wrote it. And he's writing about what's life going to be like then? We'll be flying across the ocean instead of sailing and taking three weeks to cross the ocean. We're just going to fly back and forth across the ocean instead of mailing a letter that takes you three weeks to get to England and three weeks to get the response back. We're just going to zap it across there with floating telegraph lines. We're going to zip the messages across the ocean. He also wrote the year 2050, there's going to be an earthquake that's going to destroy New York City. So those of you who are still alive in 2050, see if there's a big earthquake in New York City. So we'll find out Poe's prophetic powers. Yeah. Wow. Well, he actually, 
He does have prophetic powers. He wrote a novel called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, published yes. in 1838. I love that one. And one of the passages in that is about this these survivors. Well, what is this? Tell them what is it about briefly. It's about a guy who decides to stow away to see the world. So he stows away aboard a ship and that crashes into another ship and they're heading farther and they're farther whalers, south. Aren't they? Yeah. And they go south. And this is a time when they had just discovered Antarctica. They knew that something was there. And this is a novel about actually going to the South Pole. What are you going to find when you get there? That's kind of science fiction, too. There's still a theory mm -hmm. out there by John Sims called the holes of the poles theory, that if you actually got to the South Pole, you'd fall into that thing. It's mm. just a big hole. Uh, Earth is hollow. A black hole. So people are trying to figure out what's going to be there when you get there. And along the way, the survivors of a mutiny and shipwreck, they're they're floating along. And it's a great scene where it's they're scorching hot in the sun. You can imagine these four survivors. And there's Arthur Gordon Pym and his buddies. And then there's a cabin boy, Richard Parker, and they see this ship coming towards them where the captain on board is nodding at them and he looks like he's waving friendly to them. He's smiling. And then they get closer and they see, oh, he's not smiling. He's dead. The birds have pecked away at his face. You see the grinning skull underneath and he's not nodding at you. There's a seagull sitting on the back of his head pecking away at the back of his head. So his head's <laughs> bobbing up and down. Oh, it's a plague ship. They're all dead. And then one of the birds flies over their boat and drops like a piece of meat on it. And they look at each other and say, oh, yeah, we've got to eat somebody now. So they draw lots. And the loser is Richard Parker. So they kill him and eat him. So Poe wrote that 1838. And it ends. It's like mystical ending. Yeah. It's like a super, it's almost like the end of 2001 Space Odyssey. You just start entering some great mystery that's hardly yeah. understandable. And he says, then after that, there's a note at the end of the novel that says, because it's supposed to be the journal of Arthur Gordon Pym. It's supposed to be his firsthand account. And he says, well, I had the rest of his account, but I can't find it. So I'm going to publish it soon. So he's setting up for the sequel, but it didn't sell enough to get a sequel, so you've got it without the sequel. Interesting. So it would have maybe gotten better, maybe it would have gotten worse, but somehow we know that Pym makes his way back to the, the United States and meets Edgar Allan Poe. So it's kind of meta there because Poe includes himself in the story as the guy who meets Pym and tells him to write down his story. And and Poe says, and according to Pym, who's actually Poe, Poe wrote the first chapter, and then Pym wrote the rest of it. It gets a little strange and confusing. And then at the very end, there's another note from a third narrator saying some of these things that were in the novel that they didn't see, this is what they meant, that these strange symbols on the wall were actually ancient writing, and this is what they said. So Poe's adding layer upon layer of this and well, different levels of understanding. And the prophetic part is that in 1884, it happened. There are these sailors, I think they were off the coast of Australia, three survivors in a life, four survivors in a light boat, and they drew straws to see who gets eaten, and the loser was the cabin boy, Richard Parker. So if your name is Richard Parker, do not go sailing. Wait, so the name Poe used in his novel ended up being a real sailor who died the same way yeah. As his novel decades prior. So that proves that Poe is a time traveler. Wow. Now that's bizarre. Now, quickly, I want to get to, to this regarding the genres that kind of Poe is accredited for beginning, because this is probably my favorite literary genre, which is I've heard it said that Poe is 
like the godfather of the Southern Gothic. And so I, that's my favorite genre, like Cormac McCarthy, um, you know, uh, so what, so do you think that's true? Do you credit? Do well, you he's think, a little bit different because a lot of the Southern Gothic too. we think of is more after the Civil War and it's people looking back on that time from that perspective. So I, I tend to think of Flannery O'Connor yep. and Faulkner and yes. these people. I think maybe why people have made that stretch is because of what you're saying about being in the mind of like the villainous character. Because mm. very often the Southern Gothic is about the outcasts. Like it's about the yeah. freaks or the criminals or the cripples or, you know. Um, so I think maybe that's why yeah. people have made that connection. And yeah. and I guess you can see something like A Rose for Emily from Faulkner. That's, that's very Poe-esque, isn't it? There's the decay and... Mm. And Flannery O'Connor, that that interest in death, these characters, you know, oh, that character is going to get it. They're going to be dead yes. by the end of this story. Something gruesome is going to happen. And that reminds you of some of Poe's stories, like a predicament where the woman gets her head trapped inside of a the face of a giant clock with the minute hand going down, down, down. <laughs> it probably chops her head off. It's a comedy. <laughs> so she's describing to you what it's like to have her head chopped off and then what it's like for her head to roll down the side of the the roof and then rolling down the street and describe what's it like to see her body getting farther and farther away from her head as she's rolling down the street. So Poe had a strange sense of humor sometime. I also mm. wrote one, the, the, the angel, the odd about this strange character that showed up when a guy was drunk. I think he's got the bottle as a big barrel of wine and, and his arms are wine bottles and, and Flannery O'Connor actually, I think she actually liked that story. Hmm. So she liked some of his weird, far out comedies because it's it's a strange sense of humor. And yes. some of it, you have to know the references like, oh, it, it helps if you know he's talking about the transcendentalist in this one or helps if you know he's talking about socialism in this one or if he's talking about the Greek philosophers in this one. But in the Angel of the Odd, it's just weird, and that's probably mm. what makes it so great that it transcend, transcends specific time. Mm. It's just a bizarre story. Man, well, I've got a lot of reading to do because I haven't read some of these, the, the lesser-known works that you've been mentioning. Now, um, yeah, my final thought there, though, was that in you know Cormac McCarthy, a few of his are considered Southern Gothic. They take place in Appalachia, like uh, Child of God, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Which is about I think the character's name is Lester Ballard, who is this like roaming murderous pervert. And I don't think Poe ever really wrote anything on the sexual. Like I don't maybe no. he couldn't do that in that time period. But yeah, he uh, probably would have been banned for yeah. obscenity then. Exactly, but certainly it Lester Ballard. Cormac McCarthy's character kind of feels like a Poe character, but but more yeah. perverse in in many ways. But um, okay, let's get to because you wrote a whole book on like weird stuff around Richmond regarding Poe, Poe's afterlife. Quickly, how did Poe die? And then start telling me tell me a bit about your book. Okay, well we're not sure how Poe died. We know that he was traveling on his way from Richmond up to New York, and it wasn't just a straight shot. He would have had to take a steamship called the Pocahontas from here to Norfolk, Virginia, and then from Norfolk to Baltimore. From Baltimore, he's going to catch a train that take him part of the way to Philadelphia, 
but there wasn't a bridge going over the river. So once they got part of the way, they had to get off, take a ferry, then take another train on the other side. Then I got him to Philadelphia, we catch another train to get to New York. And he left here. He was very, feeling kind of sick. He was dizzy. He was, he was kind of at a fever. He was with his fiance because he was about to get married. And she said he had a weak pulse. So she took his pulse and urged him not to go. Even visit a doctor. And the doctor thought maybe Poe's too sick to travel the next day. It's going to take you five days to get up there. But Poe insisted, I have to do this because we're going to get married in 10 days. Got to hurry up and do this. And is this his second wife because the first one died? Yeah, this is his second wife, Elmira Shelton. He, he was seeing her as a teenager when they were both kids, but her father intercepted Poe's love letters to her when he was at college, so she'd think Poe had forgotten about her and she married somebody else. Mm. So here they are, both 40 years old, both their spouses have died, they're finally getting back together. He just has to go to Philadelphia on business, edit a book of poetry, then head up to New York, pick up his first wife's mother, who's a widow, and bring her back down here to Richmond to live with them because the families would take care of widows back then. And Elmira was cool that she wrote to her and said, I look forward to calling you mother and to walk you into my home. I've heard only the best things about your beautiful daughter, Virginia, even though she's my new husband's ex-wife. I heard great things about her. So things are going Poe's way. And then he got to Baltimore. And his luggage was either at the train depot or at the hotel across from the train depot, depending on the account. But he wasn't. It was election day when they found him, and he was at the polling place. Ryan's Fourth Ward Polls, a notorious Whig stronghold. Not the Whigs you wear on your head, the W-H-I-G, a political party. Before they had the Republicans, you had the Whigs. So it was the Whigs versus the Democrats. And they had a practice called cooping there, where they would find people from out of town that nobody would recognize and they'd drug them. Mm. they get a whole bunch of people cooped up t- together in a backyard or in a basement. And then on election day, you drag them all to the polls. You bribe the election judge because each polling place had an election judge. You had to convince that you could vote. So you didn't have a photo ID or anything like that. It couldn't look you up on the computer. You just had to convince the election judge that you were eligible. So they would bribe or threaten the election judge. they drag all these drugged up people through. They all sign their X in the line, drag them back, switch all their clothes, and then they make them vote again. And then they switch their clothes and have vote again. And maybe that's how he turned up semi-conscious, dressed in somebody else's clothes. And they would just kidnap, at a polling place. You know, so what do people think? That he's like leaving a bar kind of drunk and then you just get kidnapped yeah, out of an alley? Yeah, they just grabbed him and hauled him back to the cooping place, which was often a backyard or a basement back then. And then he spent his last four days in the hospital, delirious, in and out of consciousness, talking to shadows in the wall, not making any sense. And they probably looked him up and down and said, you know what, you need some whiskey. That'll, that'll make you feel better. And, but he apparently turned that down, but he, he was there for four days without a lot of medical attention. The attending physician wrote different articles saying different things about it, but he says that he administered beef stew and stimulants. And back then, they thought alcohol was a stimulant. Mm. So maybe they were giving him alcohol and beef stew or beef tea. Mm. And then he, he said, Lord, help my poor soul. That was his last words. And some other clue he gave us was he screamed the name Reynolds over and over again. <laughs> There's different theories about who this Reynolds was. Was he the... Was he the election judge at the Fourth Ward polls, as also named Reynolds? Was he Jeremiah Reynolds who discovered Antarctica? 
Mm. There's all sorts of far out Reynolds theories. We mm. even had somebody suggest here that it was Ryan Reynolds, the actor. I don't believe that one though. <laughs> That's not a prophecy. No. Now, are there are there um, other theories for his death? Oh yeah, we've got rabies, diabetes. Mm. The doctor said he had inflammation in the brain, so we're leaning towards maybe meningitis, mm. cephalitis, rabies was all the so maybe he was kind of sick, and then he yeah. got after. Fucked by these, you know, fucked yeah. over by these gangs, street yeah, gangs. Yeah, he's already sick before he leaves Richmond. Right, right. And they've tested, well, maybe it was a buildup of carbon monoxide in his system mm. that it was damaging his brain. He wouldn't get enough oxygen to his brain. They actually tested some of his hair to find out if there was any evidence of that. There was coal oil gas that was burned in a lot of the homes in New York City and used for illuminating gas. And that would have left a certain uranium isotope in the hair hmm. so they tested for that and they couldn't find enough of it his wife had tons of it in her hair because hmm. her hair is a lot longer than his so her hair some of it was what was growing while she's living in new york city where they had a lot of gaslight when they moved to the country afterwards they didn't have the coal oil gas as much so they didn't have as much in their hair and they also tested to see what his diet was like. They tested different stable mm. isotopes of carbon and nitrogen to find out if he was getting a balanced meal in the last months of his life. That mm. was happening. They tested all sorts of heavy metals. So he found out that his mercury level shot up like 264% in the last few months of his life. From one half of his hair to the other half of his hair, it shot right up. And they traced that to calomel pills they were giving him. They are made of mercury. Mm. He complains about how one of his doctors had given these pills and he doesn't know he'd rather have cholera than these pills. They're making him all woozy. Mm. And there's another theory that Elmira's brothers didn't want him to marry their sister, so they followed him up to Baltimore and forced him to get drunk in public and called the newspapers because it was a newspaper, newspaper man, Joseph Walker, who found Poe. Mm. So maybe they tipped off the media so that way Poe would break his pledge to stop drinking and Elmira would you know, break their engagement. A year earlier, Poe had become engaged to a woman and pledged not to drink. And when she found out he, he had something to drink, she broke off the engagement. So here he is doing the same thing. He joined the Sons of Temperance and pledged never to touch alcohol again. He'd been in this temperance group and... That was like an earlier AA type thing? Yeah, early version of AA. So if he'd broken that pledge, she probably would have kicked him to the curb too. So that was the theory. They wrote a whole book about it called Midnight Dreary. Mm. So there's all sorts of these different theories popping. There's about 26 published theories in all. Even mm. within a few years after his death, one of, one of the fans of his, Elizabeth Oak Smith, wrote that it was a fight over a woman that some... Some men had beaten him, and he died as a result of the beating. Wow. So maybe well, – I'm not buying that one. I think her story was a little bit off. She said he got beaten up in New York City, so it wouldn't explain how he got all the way to Baltimore. Sure. And we know he had made it to Philadelphia because he didn't have a chance to edit the book of poetry up there he was supposed to edit. So we're probably not going to find out exactly what killed him, but there's theories from – just the mundane that maybe it was pneumonia or maybe it was delirium tremens. Maybe he was secretly getting little sips of alcohol so that he wouldn't have that withdrawal. And maybe since 
he was traveling. The alcohol withdrawal was causing him to have delirium tremens. Interesting. But it does look like, according to the attending physician, they were giving him alcohol in the hospital, so maybe hmm. he was getting That's kind of hard to know because the attending physician made up a bunch of stuff because he he kept coming with more colorful accounts. You know, at the beginning, he said in a letter a month after Poe died, his last words were, Lord, help my poor soul. But by 1885, he wrote a book where he's got Poe delivering these really profound, poetic last words on his deathbed. Another version, he has him saying, nevermore, which would be perfect if he thought to do that, man. <laughs> when I die, I should say nevermore because that's from my poem. And, and people are going to write that down. But it says like, Lord, help my poor soul, which is kind of, it was a kind of common saying back then. Hmm. Well, I want to hear about this book you wrote about, what is it called? It's called Haunted Poe or Poe Haunting? It's Haunting Poe. So your book is about how Poe has haunted Richmond after his death? Oh, it's about Richmond and beyond. And it beyond. starts out with Poe's lifetime. And I wanted to really talk about Poe and the paranormal. So we start with his childhood and some of the ghost stories that he would have known about, some of the paranormal experiences he might have had, and what people in his time thought about the paranormal. So we talk about the Lady of the Lake or the Great Dismal Swamp. We talk about the Great Richmond Theater Fire, the very theater where his mother gave her last performance here in Richmond. About 18 days after she died, it burned to the ground the night after Christmas, 1811. And there's lots of stories associated with it. There was a young girl who was going to the theater that night and she encountered a strange vision. It was this ghostly form that said, Nancy, Nancy, Nancy Green, you won't live to be 16. And she was terrified. She's like, oh, I can't go to the theater. This I saw this ghost. And her foster parents forced her to go to the theater and she died there just before her 16th birthday. There's also James Gibbon, who was a naval hero, who's about to marry a beautiful young woman named Sally Conyers. But the night before he's supposed to go to the theater, he had a dream that he's in this dark, forbidding place. And he saw this evil face before him. He saw it as a premonition. And he said, I'm not going to the theater. But she guilted him into going to the theater. So eventually he went. But on the stage that night, he saw that very face from his dream. So he ran out of the theater, said, see you guys later. By the time he got across the street to the Capitol Square, he looked back and saw the theater on fire. He rushed back to rescue Sally, and he never made it back out. They found their intertwined skeletons together on the first floor. So Poe, in his time, they really thought a lot about premonitions and omens. And if we really pay close attention to the world around us, what sort of omens can we find that will warn us of what's to come? And... Also, we talk a little bit about some of the hoodoo traditions that he would have heard from the different freedmen and enslaved people in the Richmond area. And sometimes they're harder to pin down the folk tales because often they're oral traditions. But what oral traditions do sound like they line up with Poe's stories. Like with there's a hoodoo tradition of the walking man, which where you put a beetle inside a bottle and you tie a string to the bottle, and whichever way the beetle walks, you turn the bottle that way with the string, and you let the beetle lead you to lost treasure. But then in the gold bug, you've got, they're using a gold bug, or actually technically a beetle, 
to help them find the treasure. They tie a string to it. They hang it through a skull's eyeball or eye socket so they can lead them to the treasure. And in cases like this, we're thinking, well, maybe Poe did hear some of these folk tales. Was he hearing it from local slaves? You know that he would meet with freedmen. There was one freedman that he met down in Brunswick County, he said, was the most interesting person he'd ever known. He loved the stories he was telling. So what African-American folk traditions were making it into his stories? We know that they've compared his poetry, the rhythm of his poetry, the music of his poetry, to African-American spirituals. So how were these influences being adopted by Poe and transformed into his works? And nearby in Richmond and Petersburg, so about 30 miles south of Richmond, there's a house where a fellow, he had a slave who practiced hoodoo, and he asked him how he could build a house that's free from spirits. He didn't want any ghosts in his house. And this hoodoo practitioner actually told him that it should have no right angles. None of the walls should have right angles in them. And now it's called Trapezium House. If you visit it, all the walls are at weird angles. And they're just following the practice he learned from this Afro-Caribbean practice. It was sort of practice in the Southeast. It's not quite voodoo that we think of. This is hoodoo. It's a little bit different. So we talk about that. And then we go through Poe's adult career where he's trying to explore some of the same questions and if he's saying, well, this is what these traditions tell us about ghosts and the supernatural, what does the latest science tell us about communicating with the other side? And in his day, the latest science was animal magnetism developed by Mesmer. That's why they call it mesmerism now or hypnotism. And the idea was that if you were in a mesmeric trance, your spirit could leave your body. And if you were free of the mortal coil, if you weren't seeing through mortal eyes anymore, you could see other spirits. And there are ideas that Emanuel Swedenberg was able to leave his body and communicate with spirits from other planets. And and here in the United States, there's Andrew Jackson Davis who would go on stage and they put him into a trance and he would tell you what he could see on the other side. He said, there's a world called Summerland and that's where we went after he died. And and he could communicate with other spirits in the distant past. So think of Edgar Cayce, this trance medium. That's what we're doing. This is trance mediumship in the 1840s. So Poe wrote stories like the facts in the case of M. Valdemar and mesmeric revelation about the experiments where they're using animal magnetism to mesmerize a dying man. So he can tell you what he sees on the other side after he's dead. And in the facts of case of M. Valdemar, the guy died, but he was still in the mesmeric trance, and he stayed dead for seven months while in a trance state. And they could still ask him, what do you see over there? What's going on the other side over there? And finally, this man, Valdemar, says, wake me up from my trance. Wake me up. I'm dead. And they wake him up, and he just dissolves into a pool of loathsome, detestable putrescence right before their very eyes, just a big pile of smelly goo. And this was so popular, people believed it was true, made to medical journals of the time, the popular record of modern science. Even English in London, they're publishing in medical journals over there. And after Poe said, no, it's not true, it's just a hoax, they wouldn't believe him. And there's a spiritualist who wrote to Poe and said, you know, that story really is true, isn't it? I practiced that experiment on one of my patients who died and it brought him back to life. And... So that was Poe right at the forefront of this. And I think 
because of the way the timeline fits up, it was actually Poe's stories that influenced Andrew Jackson Davis's transmediumship. So Poe unintentionally helped inspire one of the first great transmediums in the United States. And Andrew Jackson Davis, he's not as well known today. He's considered sort of the the prophet of spiritualism, the one who is maybe the John the Baptist of spiritualism, pointing to what was about to come because in March of 1848, he was on stage and he said, something great has just happened that'll change the world. This is going to shock everyone. And it turns out that that's lined up with the Fox sisters in Hydesville, New York, having their first sessions of hearing rapping sounds. That's another kind of medium that they would communicate with the dead through rappings and knockings. Of course, the Fox sisters were just cracking the knuckles on their toes. But before you know it, the cat's out of the bag and everybody is having these sort of seances. And and that became really popular like in the late 1800s, early yeah, 1900s. And it became huge right after, so during the Civil War. So he's way before that. Yeah, think about the Civil War in the 1860s and people are sending their loved ones off to battle some far off state, maybe Tennessee or something. You're up in New York. Your your loved one went down to Tennessee. You never see him again. What happened to him? Oh, I'll hire a spiritualist medium, and they'll help me communicate. They'll help me find him. And nowadays, we, you know, we look back. You know, everything's hindsight. And you know, we've got you know electromagnetic field detectors. We've got all these digital audio devices, and we've got infrared photography, and we can see the changes in temperature and magnetic fields. But in Poe's day, animal magnetism, that was the hot technology. That was the latest that technology. That was like AI. And it was the so, cutting edge. Yeah, that's what they're using to try to communicate with the other side. So this was seen as a great advancement beyond whatever was happening in Poe's childhood or earlier. And people thought that Poe himself possessed paranormal powers and that's part of what attracted one of his fiancés to him. Her name was Sarah Helen Whitman, who was a spiritualist. And she loved Poe's stories about mesmerism so much that she wrote a love poem about him. She was actually stalking him before they were met. You know, she'd write to women who knew him say, is he single? Is he available? You think he'd dig it if I wrote him? And, and she wrote this love poem about how she wanted to fly away with the raven to his area up in the sky. So he dropped everything, went to Providence to see her. She lived up in Providence same hometown of H.P. Lovecraft. And mm. they took a long romantic walk through the cemetery together. And she pointed out one of the graves. So that's a grave of one of my lost loves. I like to visit here and communicate with them. And, and Poe said, let me tell you about graves. Back in Richmond, my first love died early. And I used to visit her grave all the time too. We're soulmates now. And they actually became engaged after that. They bonded over death. Mm. But she's the one who made him give up drinking. She said, I'll marry you if you never touch alcohol again. But he loved his booze more than he yeah, loved her. Yeah, so the engagement lasted one month. But it's interesting, a lot of stuff you mentioned, because we still have a lot of these ideas yeah. kind of in the new, sometimes in the new age movement, like astral projection yeah. kind of sounds like what you're talking about regarding to, to leave the body and find information. Yeah. You know, we talk about telepathy and stuff like that. Mm. Um and what's really fascinating, because you know, you mentioned earlier that Poe went to UVA. At yeah. UVA, I've talked about it on the podcast. I've done an episode on reincarnation. They have a department that studies reincarnation and uh, near-death experience. So interesting too with that story with the man who yeah. who's in a near, basically like in a near-death state, and they're getting information. Yeah, from. it's 
It's really the tale of the ragged mountains is about that same thing. He, I think he that one's about reincarnation. His, yeah, he sees his previous self. He's actually able to go back in time. Yes, that one is. I, I might read that one for the intro. I'm not yeah. sure, but that one definitely seems to yeah, be about reincarnation but, and to take place in Charlottesville, where UVA yeah. is, where they're doing this reincarnation research. It's kind of like a little trippy. Yeah. And then after I talk about Poe and his lifetime, we talk about his death and how. Sarah Helen Whitman was one of the first people who claimed to make contact with the spirit after he died. So now we're getting to a different kind of medium that they went from having just merely the knockings to having automatic writing. And there, there were poets like, there was Lizzie Doden who said she transcribed entire poems that Poe's spirit gave to her. And that she's not the only one. There are multiple people who did this who were sort of doing automatic writing. And so we trace the history of Pose afterlife from this point forward. Does until, it sound like it's in his voice? And do you believe it? No, I don't believe it. Uh, her most famous one's called The Streets of Baltimore. And if you read it, it's just a quick ripoff of The Raven. Instead of saying, quote, The Raven nevermore, she's, she ends each stanza in, in the streets of Baltimore. Ah. And then she claims, oh, I never read any of his poetry. It's like, sure, you yeah, didn't. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And there's a play we have in our collection, too, from the 1880s, where the whole farewell speech from Poe at the end of the play was written by Lizzie Doden channeling Poe's spirit. So this was going on for a while later. And then we bring it to contemporary times and how I try to trace different Poe sightings in different places because he moved around. He bounced around from city to city and had a lot of pivotal moments in different cities like when I was just mentioning Sarah Helen Whitman, when she broke it off with him, how devastated he felt, how, I mean, their relationship, he almost killed himself. He swallowed laudanum to try to end it all. So there must have been a lot of passionate energy in that spot, and people still claim that they would see Poe's figure walking down Benefit Street towards her house, or they would sometimes see him. There's stories of him being at the Providence Athenaeum, where they used to meet, they used to hide in the stacks of this library together to hide from her mother. And and the story is that sometimes students would be in there and they'd fall asleep while they're reading and Poe would come and smack them on the back of the head and wake them up. But Poe also apparently still haunts three different bars. Hmm. In Delaware, in Pennsylvania, and in Baltimore. And in the one in Baltimore, they save a stool for him. And they say that they leave him a drink at night. He'll drink it up during the night, and it'll be empty in the morning. And if you're in this bar, apparently if you make fun of him, he'll push you off your stool, or you, you won't want to make Poe's ghost angry. Were these places bars in his time? Yeah, the General Wayne Inn up in Marion, Pennsylvania was around during Poe's time. Mm. The one in Baltimore Gotta is the horseshoe there. came in on, and... I'm not sure it was in Poe's time. They say it's the last place that Poe was before he went to the hospital. But I think the place he was was torn down. So this is sort of in the general area. But there's also sightings of Poe. They said they've seen him in the Bronx. There was a paranormal investigator in the 1970s who was in Poe's cottage in the Bronx. Yeah, and according there. to him, he took a photo of Poe's rocking chair. That's the rocking chair that Poe used to own sitting in there. Should be here at the Poe Museum where we could see it, but it's there. And afterwards, he got the film developed and had this print. And the investigator said that the print had a white smudge on the chair. 
And over time, the smudge got more distinct and sort of turned into a man that looked like Poe. And I've been trying to find this photo ever since to find out, well, how much does it look like Poe? Because mm. a lot of times people take photos and they say, oh, that's Poe there. And it could be any guy with a mustache. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of guys had dark hair and mustaches. Mm. And Has anyone shown up here saying that they're his reincarnation? Oh, yeah, there's a few of those. <laughs> and there was actually a book that was printed. And I think I mentioned this in my book, too, that said that Poe was reincarnated as L. Ron Hubbard. Wow. So it's interesting to see that's the tradition. A, that's the founder and, of Scientology? Yeah. And then there was <laughs> there's a person who's sort of, she hires herself out to police departments to help them solve crimes. And she has Poe as sort of a guide. So Poe's spirit guides her to help solve mysteries. And I think for wait, a while- Wait, wait, they, wait, wait. This is a woman who's a medium. Yeah. And, and she po, and says she channels Poe yeah. to-, to Help give police tips. Yeah, so Poe's still out there pretty Is this active. woman alive? Yeah, I think she's still alive today. It's, I it's got to do a podcast there. with her. Yeah, you got to find out you know, what, what's he been telling her. So it's interesting that so many people feel this connection to Poe that they could still channel him, but they still see him in different places. So apparently they've had sightings in New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Richmond, mm. and even... In Petersburg, they say they've seen his wife down there. That's where mm. Poe spent his honeymoon. So it's great to see how these stories are a combination of ones that are brought up from folk traditions or from local legends or urban legends to ones where they have actually had paranormal investigating groups go out to different sites and see if they can verify this story or that so the Poe House in Baltimore has had paranormal investigators there. So modern, that one too. modern paranormal investigators with all the modern equipment. And mm-hmm. we here in Richmond have had paranormal investigator groups. Several groups have come here over the years and, and trying to find out, well, what's in here? And the Poe Museum here in Richmond is kind of a different case because we're four buildings in all with a garden in the middle and all the houses are different ages. So one's from the 1890s, another one's from the 1750s. And they found spirits who might be from completely different ages. The mm. colonial era boy in one house and maybe a late Victorian era man from another house. Mm. And so I don't know if they've ever seen Poe. I don't know if they've had a good... Mm. verified identification of Poe here. There's stories that they've seen Poe here, but they seem a little, some of them seem a little bit far-fetched. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? Like, obviously, if you know this, I mean, this podcast has been so cool. If you know all this about Poe, clearly you must resonate to some elements of his storytelling so deeply. Do you have personal experiences or intuitions about these types of topics? No, not too much here. Even from from my early days, you know, I would go out seeking to find out what sort of entities were out there. I would wander around the woods or into old houses at night. And there's once I heard this story of a woman that comes down these stairs in these old houses at night. So I camped out the foot of the stairs all night watching and didn't see her. I was so disappointed. But the first chance I had to do a paranormal investigation here, there's a group that came in and we took them around. We turned down all the lights. They had all the stuff, all the video cameras, the recording devices and everything. And there was a medium in the group. And and he told me, 
I have a message for you from Poe's wife, Elizabeth. I said, do you mean Virginia? And then a few minutes later, he just went back to calling her Elizabeth again. And I thought, and then we eventually went down sitting in a dark room. He says, I feel the presence just over here to my right. I said, oh, that's just me. That's just me. I'm over here. So some of them I'd expected, you know, I wanted the whole Ghostbusters thing. You get to see a full body apparition jumping out at you. We didn't see that. It's mostly just voices. And what was weird is this group in one of the buildings, which is the 1860s building, they left it and it was just sort of an afterthought. They were leaving the camera still on and the audio was on the camera. It was a older female's voice with sort of an older Virginia accent saying, don't go. And you now that you think that could be something else. But then another group, completely different time. They had the little digital recording device and they're going into the building. And they heard the voice saying, come on in. So if there is something in that particular building, it's friendly. There's no reason to assume that just because there's paranormal activity that they're angry or they're out to get you. Sometimes they just seem like they're they're friendly. The little boy that people said they've seen, he, the most, maybe he would play some pranks or something, but he's just a fun-loving kid. He just, we don't know how many children might have died in that house over the age because there are high infant mortality rates. Like, a lot of kids didn't make it past childhood. So that could be anything. And I remember once, you know, I got there early in the morning and I was opening one of the doors to one of the, the side room in that little house and the door sort of swung open because it's just an old door and it just hit the bottom of the steps and made a loud noise. And, oh, great. For, last thing you won the first morning before you had any caffeine is a loud noise. And then I heard from upstairs a knock answering it. Well, it's kind of weird. Maybe it sort of echoed up there. So then I knocked on the bottom of the stairs twice and then I heard two knocks coming from upstairs and thought, okay are we talking coincidence here so then I go very deliberately one two three so there's three knocks and then I hear from above one two three and I never did figure out what caused that or anything and and I didn't try for a fourth one or anything. I said, well, good morning. So do you believe in ghosts? I don't know. It's hard to disprove anything. It's hard to disprove the existence of something. You can't really prove that a unicorn doesn't exist. Mm. You can only prove that something does exist. And then as far as ghosts, I often think, well, what really is a ghost? Because Mm. we're obviously talking that a residual haunting isn't the same as a poltergeist. Mm. It's like seeing a paper airplane, a helicopter, a dragonfly, and a bird all flying. They all fly, Mm. but they're not the same thing. So what could we be seeing or hearing or experiencing? And maybe some people aren't experiencing ghosts at all. Maybe they're seeing some kind of loop in space-time. I don't know how that would work, but maybe that's what it could be. Or maybe they said that a lot of poltergeists probably related to a young person living in that house and that young person, maybe it has something to do with them. Maybe it's some kind of telekinesis or something. Maybe it has to relate to that young person. Usually they're about the same age. Hmm. So 
who knows? Yeah, there's so many interesting theories. I think I've heard like intense trauma, like in a yeah. place, will kind of create the yeah, emotion like of like the a, trauma, like a tape recording exactly. on that spot. So that would be completely different than seeing sort of a loop in space time or something. Or one of my most mystical friends, she's an herbalist. You know, she sees all sorts of stuff like fairies. I don't know what to make of stuff like that, but something that she tries to impart me with is this idea of like spiritual discernment, which is like what you're talking about. Just like how do you know what you're experiencing? Like yeah. if you're in the woods and you have this very bizarre, uncanny experience, how do you, how can you discern what that is? Yeah. You know? And then sometimes around here, you can just sort of feel the presence of time. And like, if you're say here at night and everything's died down a little bit, the traffic's died down. You just hear the echoes reverberating through the bricks of the Poe shrine, a little brick pergola in the bus to Poe. You can sort of feel that you're, part of this space-time continuum that really we're all just in different places of the same space-time but it's almost like a river I think mm. where the river still exists even though yeah part of the river right now is in Virginia Beach or part of the river's out in Richmond and you might all be standing in the same river but in different parts mm. So here I must sort of feel the presence. You know, I know, oh, right here, right where I'm standing right here. Oh, Gertrude Stein had her picture taken right here. And how do you sort of feel connected to that continuum of time? And mm. that, you know, yeah, sure, I missed her by 90 odd years or something, but this is the spot. And I don't know if it's an energy or just that feeling that this is the same spot where all these things have happened over time and, you know, H.P. Lovecraft walked through here. Vincent Price stood on these stairs right here. So maybe mm. if you stand there and there is a house here in Richmond where Poe gave his last private reading of The Raven. And it's still standing on West Gray Street in the 1970s. Vincent Price, he'd already done all these Poe movies. And he got permission to go into the house and stand in the spot where Poe stood and recite some of The Raven. Oh and I thought that's great how this... We're all sort of connected through the, the river of time. And that's not real. I'm not sure if that's a mystical thing or if it's just like well, I think a it's very mystical. Thing. And I think, you know, I hope so badly that all these artists like Poe who were so like crushed in their own time, I just hope there's an afterlife where they get to see like the amazing effects that their hard life and their incredible creativity, like what it, what it's done for the fu future people. I just like, you hope that Poe knows everything that is this podcast, this amazing museum, you know, the millions and millions of people who read his work now, which none of that was happening in, in his time. You know, as an artist, you're a painter. Like, you know, you wonder like, what the hell is the point of even doing this? Does anyone give a shit about what I'm doing? You know, you know, or do I even want to reveal my darker work, my darker paintings? You know, you just, you just, to know that your creativity will be championed in, in the centuries to come. I mean, what incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Poe already knew he had a big ego. So he even wrote essays about the difficulties of being superior to the rest of the human race. It's <laughs> just a really matter of them catching up with you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, but this is what I've been thinking about. If his ego wasn't that strong and the rest of his life is telling you, is crushing you, then maybe he wouldn't have had 
the self-confidence to make this incredible work. Yeah, it's right? weird with him when he's 20 or so years old, he wrote to an editor. What had happened was Poet published, he brought out a new book of poetry and he was trying to explain what this was about. His first book was a dismal flop. So he's trying to you know, get this new book out there in the market. He's trying to get editors to write about it and they were making fun of it. And one guy had said, you know, this is nonsense, but it's, it's exquisite nonsense. And Poe wrote to him and later said, those are the first words of encouragement I'd ever received. And, you know, <laughs> I'm young, not quite 20, but I am a poet. It deep worship of all things beautiful can make me one. And I give the world to embody just half the ideas afloat in my imagination. And I know I'll create something great. And that was this idea when he was 20. And when he's 40, he wrote a letter. The California gold rush was you know, drawing a lot of people out west. And Poe wrote to his, one of his friends that he wouldn't give up the life of the literature for all the gold in California. And you got to imagine this. He'd been through heartbreak and poverty and suffering. And here he was saying it was worthwhile. That's he, incredible. he hadn't really seen the rewards for it, but he knows it's all been worthwhile that he's able to see beauty that nobody else can experience. He's seen other worlds that they can't dream of. So a life, almost a life of the imagination. Yeah. And on that, let's end because that's awesome. Nevermore. In closing, do you want to quickly say, tell a little, a little quip about the museum? Um, you know, checking it out on if you guys do social media or the website or how people can come by if they're ever in the Richmond area. All right. The Poe Museum in Richmond is the place to go for all things Poe. We're the world's finest collection of Edgar Allan Poe artifacts and memorabilia. Everything from the socks on his feet to the hair on his head. We even have a piece of Poe's original coffin and his socks and vest on display. Got first editions, manuscripts, and we even have two black cats. And we're celebrating our second century. The museum's already over 100 years old, and we've been collecting that whole time. And if you can't visit in person just now, you can visit us online at poemuseum.org. We've got a collections database. We have a list of upcoming events. During the summers, we have an unhappy hour you can visit. kind of like a happy hour, except really melancholy with live music <laughs> and drinks. And then in January, we have the Poe Birthday Bash. We're going to party like it's 1849. And maybe Poe will show up. And your books? And we got books, yeah. If you visit, you can just look up Chris Simpner or chrissimpner.com and... My most recent one is Haunting Poe, Edgar Allan Poe's Afterlife in Richmond and Beyond, but I also had one before that, The Poe Shrine, Building the World's Finest Edgar Allan Poe Collection, which tells how the Poe Museum went about getting a lot of the collection, and we do profiles of some of the pieces in the collection, like that famous photograph of Poe taken four days after a suicide attempt, and Poe's childhood bed, and even the lock of his hair, where these came from, and what they have to tell us about Poe, but plenty of other ones over the years, like Poe in Richmond. There's one called Edgar Allan Poe's Richmond, The Raven in the River City. We've done one about the Raven illustrations of James Carling. And the museum also has Facebook, they have Instagram. We're doing TikTok now. And we have a YouTube page where you can catch bi-weekly installments of the Curator's Crypt, where we go into detail about some of the different artifacts in the collection and the stories they have to tell and get you some close-up views of those. So there's no excuse not to find some Poe Museum. Get your Poe fix. 
see that bird, our sign of parting, bird of fiend, I shrieked up starting. Get thee back unto the tempest and the night's Plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of the lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart. And take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore.